welcome everyone. Welcome to Progressive News Network on this Sunday afternoon. Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network. My name is Janine Moloff. I am the host of the Sunday show and the producer, and we have, I would say, a very important show today. So let's get into it. Today, our, our founder and executive producer, Rick Spizak, joins us with a fascinating interview. And this is an interview of uh, Dr. Rebecca Jones. Um, we're going to get into that in just a minute. So um, Dr. Rebecca Jones is the scientist who was fired by Governor DeSantis of Florida, her crime. She used geographic information system software to create a COVID dashboard for the Florida Department of Health so they could actually track how many COVID cases were occurring. Um, DeSantis wanted her to hide the COVID data, and she refused to falsify COVID statistics uh, and filed a whistleblower lawsuit. Jones, what, I'm sorry, she filed a whistleblower lawsuit. Jones was fired the next day. So let me back up a little bit. She refused to falsify the COVID occurrence, the COVID um, data, then that's really what DeSantis wanted her to do. And she then filed a whistleblower lawsuit against the governor. She was fired the very next day. Now, these days, Rebecca Jones is running for Congress against, you know, Matt Gates, And Rick has that interview. Now, additionally, on the second hour of our show, I will be talking about Ukraine including the cowardly invasion by Russia and the nuclear danger presented not only by Chernobyl, but the 15 other nuclear reactors that are within Ukraine's boundaries. And these are nuclear reactors. They are not designed to withstand military bombing. And because of Putin's insane invasion, a nuclear event is possible. Now, on that advert, I didn't include some other information. So, my story in Ukraine is going to feature that, but I'm also going to talk about kind of more of an overview of what's happening in the news because it's changing so rapidly, literally by the hour, that I had to amend it so it wasn't reflected in the advert. And that is the fact that just a few hours ago, Putin uh, heightened the deterrence alert on nuclear deterrence to high alert. So this is something that is really very concerning. But first, we're going to get to Rick's interview with Dr. Rebecca Jones. Now, here is the bio for her. Dr. Rebecca Jones is a climatologist born in Mississippi. She earned her PhD on climate issues, but she also studied journalism, so she's pretty much a Renaissance woman. She worked on coastal climate issues in Louisiana before she joined the state of Florida to work on climate science. Now, she also has had a very strong interest in mathematics, and picked up several computer languages as she learned different ways to present complex data models that she was designing for uh, an often inattentive audience. Now, the model she built for COVID tracking included a wide variety of data input, and when she completed its assembly, it was actually touted as an example for the entire country. But until DeSantis didn't like the taste of Dr. Jones's medicine. She was ordered to, quote, rig the data, and she was told to pound sand. In other words, she was, DeSantis tried to order Dr. Jones to falsify public data, okay? 
And when she refused to do so, she was fired. Uh, when she informed uh, her boss that she would be filing a whistleblower lawsuit, you know, that resulted in her firing. Her determination to present the facts, I'm sorry, to present the facts to Floridians cost this PhD scientist and young mother her job and her career. Then they sent the cops to raid her house ostensibly because she had an email list that was freely distributed to thousands across the state. So there's a lot here. Listen to her story. And let me get it to you here. It's in two parts. Here is the first part of Rick Spizak's interview with Dr. Rebecca Jones. Here we go. Ms. Jones, welcome. I'm so happy that you could join us. PNN Progressive News Network has really focused on helping activists get their voice out. And nothing pleases me more than have a fellow data scientist, a journalist, uh, an activist who's not afraid to take a principled stand. So I salute you. Okay. Thank you. When did you first get intrigued by the sciences, of maybe especially computer science, but just the sciences in general? Oh, I was actually um, a very late bloomer for that. So I grew up in very rural, deep south Mississippi, um, actually about two hours from where I live now in Pensacola. And um, we had one required science class in all of high school, and it was Intro to Biology, which you took like your freshman year, and that was it. Now, I took the math track all the way through to calculus, which was as high as it went when I was in high school. Um, so I always was in love with math, but science to me was a mystery. We weren't taught much beyond like the basic, you know, scientific method. Our biology teacher had to give a classroom disclaimer when we went over the required one lesson on, you know, evolutionary biology. And uh, like, I don't, I'm not endorsing this. I'm teaching it. We're going to talk about the science only, and that's where we're going. You know, so that's the kind of town that I grew up in. Um, it wasn't until actually I took a climate change course at Syracuse uh, under one of my best advisors, Dr. Jane Reed, uh, that I started to see how interconnected everything was, how important it was to understand systems, especially Earth systems, because, you know, I grew up on the Gulf Coast. I went through Katrina. And I was 16 when Katrina hit, so I was more than well aware of the social ramifications of natural disasters. But understanding the physics and the science behind them, to me, it made things I had seen happen my whole life finally makes sense. And it really was that class that I just, I fell in love hard and deep. And I just took that, you know, interest in climate all the way to my PhD in Florida State. Um, that's what I majored in at LSU for my master's. And I retained my journalism degrees because <laughs> I guess this was, you know, to be uh, forecasted for my life. I wanted to be a truth teller. I wanted to be thrown into the worst places in the world. I actually wanted to be a war journalist. Um, and what really got me interested in journalism as a kid was actually the Blood Diamond series. So I wanted to cover the stories that were tough, that needed to be told, needed to be told right. Yeah, the voice to the voiceless, which is one kind of what we say is a sector within journalism. And when I had my son unplanned my junior year of college, uh, 
writing about the things, the horrible, awful things that were happening wasn't enough for me. Um, and I don't mean to, I still have mad respect for every journalist who devotes their lives to that. I've got good friends because I was a journalism major who do that. But for me, I wanted to find a way to fix things. And the science of climate change seemed to me to be the way to do that, to find a way to contribute to the greater knowledge of climate change. And because I grew up on the Gulf Coast, hurricanes were where I was drawn to. And so I became a hurricane climatologist. Well, having one foot in the sciences and one foot in journalism, I can completely understand. Uh, to me, can't divorce truth from either journalism or science. And that twinning, that, that bringing together of them both is, is the absolute sweet spot. Well, you know, what better study of man than man? <laughs> and you said you, you want to go to the worst place. Obviously, you landed in Florida. <laughs> where, where science? I was thinking of Florida. I was thinking the third world more. <laughs> well, we're fixing you know, Florida. We're, we're on a path to fix Florida. So <laughs> it's not all bad. You're absolutely right. I, I had the good fortune to live in Florida uh, most of 40 years. I have a great love for it. I'm very sad about so many of the things that have happened there. But I understand that you're still on a trajectory to make things better. But before we get to that, I also want to say, so uh, you were working as a client, client scientist, and obviously to do that, you pay attention to a lot of numbers. That number crunching, data analysis, dealing with complex multiple inputs, and then trying to make some sense of it, infographics, uh, one of the other buzzwords in the art, um, taking that raw data and making it comprehensible. Um, yep. Time permitting later, I'll tell you some of my adventures in that arena, but that's enough said there. Okay, so you found yourself at some point uh, engaged to work with the state, uh, uh, preparing climate data, hopefully making it accessible to um, those whose attention span is rather modest, it seems. Uh, well, Talk about I your first for, work in the government. So my first government job was actually in Louisiana. I worked for the State Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority as the sole hurricane climatologist at an agency that was founded after Hurricane Katrina, the purpose of dealing with hurricanes and climate change. Well, and the, the thing is, too, is I was, I got hired before I even finished my master's. Like, I was young. I was 22 years old, you know, or no, wait, 24. Oh, God. Um, 24 years old. And I was, you know, smart and a fast learner, but that's a lot of weight for a recent, you know, master's student. I mean, I ended up having to correct some of the most fundamentals of our models because I was like, you can't take the average track of a storm for a hurricane reanalysis based on your 400 storm suite. I was like, it, it doesn't, there's more things that matter than exactly where it hits. It matters where it came from, where it's going. I mean, hurricanes even, you know, have a tilted axis. So it, it was just like, you can't, if it comes from the west versus the east, it's an entirely different storm. Has no one told you people this? <laughs> and so, you know, that's, and I was having these conversations with like Arcadis. And so these are, you know, age companies that should know better. But, you know, sometimes, and that's why subject matter expertise is so important, you have a lot of data people who say, okay, well, 
we want to recreate, you know, a storm from 1992. This one in our model suite hit, you know, with the same place. I was like, yes, but it came from a different trajectory and it hit and then went into a different trajectory, different forward motion. You know, it's, there's more that matters than just for um, where it hit and how fast the winds were. And apparently I, I rubbed some people the wrong way by saying, no, this is not how you do hurricane science, but that had to be said. You're talking about like $80 billion worth of projects across the entire coast of Louisiana. I get the storms right. If you don't do that first step right, every project that you model, every levy that you propose building is going to be off. It's ridiculous. So after I worked there for a couple of years while my husband was finishing his second master's degree, actually in biostatistics. And then I was going to go to Syracuse for my PhD. I got in um, and in Syracuse, a PhD is a big deal and they have to have full funding. But my husband wanted to do that second master's. So I tried to delay it for a year, which is a big no-no. Um, had a couple options, but decided to go the next year to Florida State to do my PhD on paleotempestology. And so I moved here, and after I finished my coursework, I had to get a real job to pay the bills because um, I have, you know, a child. And uh, that's when I took a job at DOH in their environmental health department. So dealing with things like toxicity, exposure, data modeling, um, all kinds of environmentally, you know, centered health issues, which for me put me in the um, disease control and health prevention office, which is where they combine environmental health, which was bizarre. I don't think a toxic spill is really comparable to like influenza, but that's where I ended up. And less than a year later, I got promoted to be the head of the office to run the entire, you know, geospatial data and analysis um, part of our agency, which oversaw 268 people and um, didn't even get paid 50 grand a year for it with advanced degrees. <laughs> that, that's Florida. They do not pay their state, their state employees anything. It is, remember, we're 47th in teacher pay in the country. You know, our state employees, they're basically trying to privatize and sell off everything by starving the talented kind of, you know, people who want to go into public service. It's, it's really shameful. But um, by the time COVID came around, I was the only person in disease control who had a robust statistics background, who had a, you know, ran data management for the agency and could present things in a way that were easily consumable because I had a lot of education experience in journalism. My master's degree was actually a dual major with my hurricane climatology and crisis communication. So I was, just, yeah, I was kind of like the, in the exact space that I needed to be. And after two months of begging to build a public information portal, they decided that they needed one. And uh, I think they say, you know, the rest is history. Uh, I have I've worked in those ambiguous spots where you're kind of beholden to two or three masters trying to get something done almost against the stream. So again, I have so much uh, sympathy and respect for, for what you had to do. Um, and you found yourself, you know, obviously having bumped heads with the industrial Gulf Coast, as you did previously, you were not a person to bend to the, the faintest wind. 
you knew the science, you knew what work had to be done, you knew the data you had to get. Um, I'm sure that with that uh, tumult that was the beginning investigations of COVID, there were all kinds of theories being thrown around, all kinds of data sets being, um, let's say, so much data sometimes can be confusing rather than informative. And so you found yourself with all these data sources. What was your, what were some of your next steps? So I, had, as the data manager, um, and then eventually as the manager of COVID-19 data and surveillance for the Department of Health, unlimited access to all of our data. And there was a lot of it. And I was fortunate enough, especially in the early days, to have the freedom to decide what was most important. Um, and I know now that would never happen. The craziest thing is now I know that would never happen. They would never, no state agency probably in the country would leave it to an actual scientist to determine what information needs to be presented to the public. A scientist? But, Are you kidding? I know. But in this fluke situation, I was able to say, I think we need this, this, and this. Um, of course, you know, I had supervisors who was like, well, we want to make sure we have this or we don't want this. Um, and it was a little bit of a give and take, but there was a lot of push to kind of mimic what was happening at Johns Hopkins. And I fought back against that. I said, look, people are afraid. This is about the whole point of a public information portal is to empower people with knowledge. If I, if they pull up a map of Florida and as this thing continues to grow, which it will, everything is red. That is a very, um, paralyzing fear because that means there's nowhere to go where this isn't there's no safety there's all they see is it's everywhere which is what Johns Hopkins was showing with these giant red dots I think a chloroplast probably would have done it better but um these giant red dots over every single country it was like it's everywhere that's scary I said I wanted to do Florida Department of Health colors and branding so our light blues or light yellows things that look like Florida um but I was told to make it dark like Johns Hopkins. And I said, fine, but I'm not putting red anywhere on that dashboard. I was like, I will use, and I didn't. I used blues, greens, yellows. I made sure that I was like, people are afraid. If you knew the first thing about design, you would know that red is the propaganda color that triggers fear. It is a blood, you know, it's the color blood. It is the way that we as humans have evolved to be afraid of things. And I won that fight, thank God. <laughs> But I didn't win the, the light blues and the more relaxed feeling, which is fine. But um, I thought at the beginning, all the information that we really had was how many people have been tested, how many people have tested positive, and where. So that's what we started with. And, of course, it's very bare bones at the beginning. We basically had this system called Merlin, which every single lab or hospital or Department of Health in the state fed data directly to. So sometimes we would get duplicate data. Sometimes we would get incomplete data or data that had the wrong county. Like we don't have a lot of hospitals in Northwest Florida. So there are entire counties where there are no hospitals. So people would be going, let's say to, if they lived in Jackson, going over to Leon County, because that's where Tallahassee's hospital is. And they would be counted there instead of Jackson where they live. And so we worked out a lot of those kinks in action. So, you know, of course people would see like, oh wait, you said there was this and then this. It's like, well, you know, we're, we're figuring this out as we go. Science, and science, yeah. it evolves. It's amazing as data comes in. 
Yeah, and, and data upkeep is a huge project, and there were only two of us. It was me and the database manager for epidemiology. That was it. We worked, they actually moved my office from the dungeon downstairs that had no windows to the corner office with all the windows, which I was really, really thrilled about, so I could be right next to her, partly so that we'd stop emailing each other because they didn't want to create email chains for public records requests. We were flat out told this. My supervisor put it in a legally binding deposition that we were told to stop emailing in case of public records request, but I still did it anyways. To me, the biggest flag was saying, well, let's stop putting things in writing. I was like, ha, ha, no. Uh, you come in my office, you tell me to do something. As soon as you leave, I'm writing an email to you saying, you just came into my office and told me to do exactly these things. Just wanted to make sure we got the go-ahead. That whole process that I had coming into this, being skeptical of government, especially government tells you not to have written records, saved my life. Because without those records, there's it would look like a black hole in time with no evidence of anything. And I... You document your experiments. Gosh, imagine yes. that. And we admitted our mistakes. You know, when something would happen and the dashboard would show glitchy, I had a data user's list serve so county emergency management offices, local municipalities, some members of the media who were using the you know data feed to plug into their maps, I would flat out tell them, I was like, hey guys, just wanted to let you know. We switched from, you know, um, oh God, what did we do? We switched programming languages at some point. And this was a decision that was made in Epi, but nobody told me. So when I went to go pull the data, disaster ensued. And um, this was actually the weekend I think, before Easter of 2020. And I was like, oh, God, did we change something? Because nothing is the same. I was like, nothing's working. And um, I had to spend the whole weekend trying to go back and figure it out. But, you know, I would say, like, hey, we switched programming languages. So if you see some glitches, we're working it out. And people understood that. It's, that's called being honest, being transparent. Things happen. Things change. Date, this volume of data dealing with millions of lines of code causes things to sometimes not work right. And as long as we were informing people of that, it wasn't a controversy. Like, there wouldn't be a news article saying, hey, the data went down for 15 minutes between blah, 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 and then it changed because we had already explained it. And there was a record of us explaining it. That started to change in May <laughs> um, very quickly when the state decided to reopen. And their plan was actually called Safe, Smart, Step-by-Step. Step. You can still get it online the copy of what the plan was supposed to be. So I'm supposed to have my first weekend off in months, the weekend of April 26th. I get a call Friday night late at like 7 o'clock, and it's my boss saying, hey, I know you're supposed to have this weekend off, but they're reopening the state. And this was, no one had asked us. No one had come to us and said, are we ready? Like, can you do some numbers to crunch to see if we're ready? No one. No. And Why would they um, do that, and they get facts. The hell good yeah. are facts. Well, I think this was part ignorance because they nobody in leadership was ever involved with the data processing to begin with, and they never visited us. You know, it wasn't like, hey, are you guys doing okay? You people who are here working 16 hours a day, leaving for work before your kids up, you know, wake up, coming home after their sleep, are y'all okay? Nobody ever did that. We were the people who made things run without the glory. And um, 
my boss said, well, we're going to need to develop a criteria to determine what is safe to reopen. And then we're going to need a way to measure it. And then we're going to need to prep the dashboard to reflect it. And we need this tomorrow. And <laughs> I called my counterpart, Neffy, and I was like, okay. <laughs> but we did it. We actually got it, not the next day. We got it done Sunday morning. So we get the call Friday night. It's done Sunday morning. We basically took most of the parts of the White House's COVID task force plan. So, you know, based on certain rate, hospitalization rates, testing rates, case rates, um, that model. And uh, they wanted to put a whole bunch of Trump stuff on it, too, under the information thing. And I actually fought back and won against that, too. I said, I was like, this whole dashboard works. We are the most celebrated state right now for COVID data because we're not political, because Governor DeSantis' name is not on it, because Donald Trump's name is not on it, because it is the Department of Health dashboard. They know scientists are running it. They know we care because we're in constant communication with them. I answered every email I got from the public, no matter how angry or upset they were, because I realized they're afraid and they're hearing mixed things and they're trying to go to somebody for answers. And I look like online, the person who's got all the answers. So they come to me and I would just, I'd always, you know, talk to them and say, look, I understand you're afraid. This is the information we have. This is why that information may not, you know, be complete. And this is the things you should consider about it. And um, that became this massive, like 80 page data definitions document that every time I got asked a question, we would work together to come up with the proper answer and put it in there. And um, I was pretty proud of that, too. Apparently, that was not a normal thing. And I, I knew that people just, they just needed answers. We weren't trying to tell anybody what to do. We weren't dictating rules. We were just saying, look, you have a right to make informed decisions. Whatever decisions that you make are up to you, but you have a right to the information needed to make those decisions. And so I pushed back on the Trump thing, and we didn't end up, you know, putting anything in there with Trump. And because um, half the state wouldn't trust it. The second that we put his name on it, half the state would be like, this is a propaganda tool, bye. And we needed people to do that. We got to the criteria, we presented it, or actually I presented it, because for some reason they thought that I should be the person to go to state leadership and say, here's the, here's the results. And, you know, and yeah, I know. And, oh, when I say I think it was part ignorance, I think when they saw the results for the first time, they honestly believed that it would look good. And it didn't. And there was almost a sense of panic within DOH leadership to try to make it better. And that included dropping criteria entirely. So one of the hospital metrics we initially had, because there were three common, basically, symptom sets of hospital surveillance data that we got. There was influenza because that was commonly diagnosed, you know, when you got to the hospital. Obviously COVID, and this was pre-testing. Um, so this is before people are tested and we need to keep an eye on that first. And pneumonia. Pneumonia was the single diagnosis most closely associated with COVID-19 in hospital. We knew that. Everybody knows that. It's been a well-established fact. We were told to drop it because if we included it, nothing would be going down anywhere. And so we took it out entirely. There was supposed to be a testing metric. So we had to test a certain amount of people, obviously, in order to get a proper gauge on community spread. They dropped that. 
because according to one of my supervisors, well, if people are in rural places, they naturally, this was the most bizarre email ever, socially distance, and we're not doing enough testing in those counties, so we're going to exempt them. It's like, no, the whole point of it is that you do more testing. That's the point. I don't know where this naturally socially distance idea came from in rural counties, because I grew up in a rural county on the Gulf Coast. And that's not how things work. You have one country store, and you guarantee everybody in the county is going to it. You have one doctor, everybody in the county is going to it. it. That's not how these things work. It actually creates these dense concentrations of sick people. If you only have one grocery store, one doctor's office, one of this, everyone is there. But they needed to massage things. person to do this. This is wow. What a match. What a match. Yeah. Well. I decided that, you know, I voiced my concerns, but it was a policy decision that was not mine to make. And so we ended up exempting all rural counties in the state, and they arbitrarily assigned this as, I think it was either population less than 75,000 or 100,000. It was one of those two, which was about half the counties in the state. And we now, of course, know that rural counties, which in every kind of disaster, this is true, especially health disasters, are hit hardest. And we just said, they don't have to be beholden to it at all. Now, I made the comment in one of my emails, well, is there really a point in having a criteria of half the counties in the state don't have to follow the criteria? And they were like, well, yeah. Still, soldiered on, and it was when we got to flat out data manipulation that I stopped. Because like I said, deciding not to include something, I'm not a, a doctor. That's not my decision to make. Granted, the person running the response was not a medical doctor either, but not my call. But when they wanted us to, and they eventually did, invent a positivity calculation that they used and only they use, they are the only place in the entire world that uses, I had a problem with it. And eventually said, look, I'm not going to make that calculation because that's not a real number. It's not a real positivity percent, like percent. But if you send me whatever it is and all the equations that you use to get it, I'll publish that because that's my job. And I think that was one of the first things that, I realized something is going downhill very quickly. Um, and so after that, um, because one of the main, we ended up with just four criteria. After all of that, it was cases had to be going down for two weeks straight and positivity had to be below 10% for two weeks straight. And um, hospitalizations for just flu and COVID had to be going down for two weeks straight, not pneumonia. And then, um, now I can't remember what the other one was, but that's been so long now, but it was just those four. And even after creating a fake positivity rate, which was what was keeping most counties from being able to reopen, because again, if you have a county where you only tested 10 people and two are positive, you don't make it. I even suggested statistical methodology to counteract that kind of small problem you know, issue to set up like control blocks within like two standard deviations. It was like I was speaking Greek to the people in charge. They were like, oh, that sounds all complicated. I was like, yeah, but it'd be a more accurate picture if you decide not to test people. But, you know, 
Yeah, I know, right? Um, they they had a problem with doing that math, but not the weird positivity calculation. And I think it's partly because she just had no idea what I was talking about. I don't even think she knew what a standard deviation was. And um, then when all of that didn't work, she said, you know what, I'm just going to give you a list of the counties we're going to open, and you're going to put a yes or no for each one of whether or not they meet the criteria. And I said, no. And I had, I was like, if you want me to say that we've used these measurements, and according to these measurements, this county meets all of those, and it does not, that is a lie, and I will not do it. And um, I actually laughed in her face when she asked me to do it. <laughs> I thought it was a joke. I was like, I've, I've been in climate science. Do you have any idea the scrutiny that we are under, how all of our data is public, all of our methods are always public because it's a controversial subject. The idea that someone would come and tell you or instruct you to intentionally publish misleading information, your career would be done. You would be done if anybody found that out because that is the level of scrutiny that we are under. And so she, she said that, and I, was, I literally went, no. Like, just like that. And she got really serious, and she was like, you know, I once had this data person who told me, you tell me what you want the numbers to look like, and I'll make it happen. And I realized she was serious, and I said, well, I bet you they you know, didn't have a PhD either. And that was the last time that they wanted to deal with me. And uh, apparently they went to the epidemiologist's office and asked them to do the same thing, and they said no. So then they hired a private vendor. And the Ooh, black box, yeah. yep, they put it, everything into a black box, spit it out, and said everything's great, it's safe, it's smart, step-by-step, step, based on these criteria when it wasn't, which is part of the basis of my whistleblower lawsuit against the state, um, which got me fired. I was fired the day after, not after all this happened. I was still the manager for two weeks after all this happened. Um, and I agreed to stay on, even though I wanted to quit, so I could help them prep for hurricane season, because this was May. And at the Department of Health, because I was attached to the Emergency Response Bureau, there's a whole lot of stuff that has to happen in preparation for hurricane season. And I didn't want to leave them hanging. And I had other job offers making three times as much money. But I said I would, you know, stick it out for a while. And then um, when I said I was going to file a whistleblower suit, I get fired the next day before I even come in. Yep. So, which is even worse than if they had fired me for just refusing to manipulate it. Because once you say, look, I'm filing this camp complaint to my boss, you know, in text and emails, so of course there's proof, and then they fire you, that's a big no-no. And, uh, of course, I didn't know this. This was my first run-in taking on, you know, an entire state. So <laughs> I had never, you know, been in this position before. And so that happened on a Monday. And by Wednesday, the governor of the state was in front of the vice president of the United States. I don't care who was holding the office. It's still the vice president defaming me and attacking me. And I have no idea what the hell is going on. I was like, when did he get involved? Like, I've been on, like, a couple conference calls with him. I've seen him in the emergency operations center, but I've never shaken the man's hand. I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. Why is he doing this? And, you know, after the shock of that kind of wore off, I fielded hundreds of job offers for jobs I didn't do because the media did not understand 
what that, you know, data science is a huge field. And I got lots of offers from like Google and MIT to do, you know, computational calculations and, and DNA sequencing and all. I was like, this is, I'm sorry. I was like, this would be awesome. And I'm kind of thinking I should just fake it till I make it with some of these jobs because of that sweet. But I can't do this. This is not what I do. Like I'm, this is, I am a scientist. I don't do computer, you know, software engineering. You know, just because I can code, I do that to do science. Um, I mean, it's pretty much you have to learn R as a climatologist, and that's your programming language, even though I also had to learn Python because of ArcGIS and HTML to do website encoding and SQL to work with the Department of Health. And I was apparently the only person they had who knew all four languages, so they had to hire four people to do my job. And um, that's not the same as being an engineer. Yeah. And um, after doing that for a few weeks and seeing everything that was happening in Florida, because it got bad real quick, um, everybody now knows that. And it was everything that I was, we were all afraid of. And um, I decided to do something about it. And so I launched my alternative dashboard and um, pulled in all the data we had been publishing, but were never allowed to add to the dashboard. So things like Department of Corrections cases that nobody seemed to care about. I mean, that data was always there, but we never even had a discussion about adding it. Or, of course, school cases were not available at the time when everything started, and the state actually did not want to publish them until they left the back door open and accidentally published a PDF report of hundreds of cases in schools in the first week. And I found it because, you know, I had alerts set up on that stuff and um, published it. And then they had to. And that's when I founded the national tracker for COVID-19 in schools with Google. And apparently I was the only person in the entire country who gave enough crap to ask the question, well, how many cases in our schools and why don't we have that information? And that's how that project got born. And I focused more on that going forward. But everything, you know, every sector or industry or group of people who are being affected, I felt like deserved to be there on a different tab or a different page. And I was never allowed to do that. Nobody wanted to see prison cases because nobody cared. It didn't matter how many people were dying in the prison. And schools was an inconvenient truth, as they say, because students and especially staff were getting you know, cases at a much higher rate than the general population. And nobody wanted to confront that because God forbid you have to actually raise your own children in your own home for a few months so that people don't die. Um, also learned a lot of people hate having children that have children, which was a bizarre lesson. Like, I can't stand having my kids. I was like, why'd you have them? Why did you have them? Why did you start a family if you didn't, you didn't think there would never be a time where you might have to take care of them? Yeah, whatever. Bad people selfish people. And um, I was actually finding a lot of success and doing really well with that until December 2020. And then everything changed. Let me ask you a question. Uh, I think people who've heard of you, the fine work that you did uh, were, were very dismayed to hear that <clears throat> there was a raid on your home. Um, do you have a sense now of what they were they thought they were looking for. Uh, obviously, they would have trumpeted any charges that were actually following. So that alone is, you know, speaks volumes. But did they tell you what they were looking for? Did they think that somehow you had smuggled the truth out? 
Uh, I mean, I had because, you know, the director of emergency management for the state of Florida had been feeding me information the entire time. He had been sending me data that was not publicly accessible that he could go to jail for if he wasn't in tight with the standards. And um, lots of employees of the Department of Health were making sure that I got information out that was correct if they felt like something was not being, you know, told accurately. And that included when and why some people were fired. So the state flat out lied about why they fired their communications director. And his name was Alberto. He was a good guy. Very, you know, let's just get the job done type of person, which is what I am and I appreciated. And apparently they didn't want to talk about COVID in the lead up to the election. It was a directive. And he put out some tweets, you know, with some testing data and some other information and they fired him. Then they lied publicly and said that it was an amicable resignation. Well, guess who spoke to him? Not just me, reporters. And he told the same thing. He was completely blindsided. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can tell you a thing or two about that. And that was a few weeks before the raid. And so they kind of had this mass firing and reshifting in early November. And when this happened, some employee of DOH, of the Department of Health, had sent a text message to other employees of DOH telling them to speak out and be honest. That was the justification for the raid. Honest? Why, it's unheard of. A text message to DOH employees. I think there were. I think there was a couple of things going on. Honestly, Ron DeSantis is such a psychopath that I don't. I don't. I can't understand a person that devoid of empathy or morality to try to. And I don't want to. Frankly, we filed a public records request in July of last year, which has still not been filled. For yeah, I know, right? Um, all of his and his inner circles communications with. So like five or six people that were on his staff, his communications people, and who was criminally charged with stalking me before she got her job as his press secretary. Um, yeah, criminally charged in the state of Maryland for stalking me. Um, that was her tryout for her job. And, um, you know, the police, the FDLE, um, the National Review, a couple of alt-right places, not very many. And, you know, I... We've done public records requests. We expected like a few hundred. You can't possibly be stupid to put that much information in an email. Of the things that specifically mentioned me with this inner circle over one year, 4,300 emails. 4,000. Backhanded compliment? Obviously, you made an impact. <laughs> That's obsession. That is a sick obsession. That's 12 times a day. Every single day, you know, Saturday through Saturday for a year straight. If I had known he was that obsessed, if he was that fixated on just, in his words, a girl with a laptop who wounded and bruised his ego and hurt his COVID celebration scheme, I would have gotten my family out of the state. I had no idea. I had no idea he was that crazy. And, um, so I don't think it really matters. I don't understand the psyche behind what he was doing. Other than that, two things were very clear. One, they didn't come from me because we published the video. I came out. I had my arms up. I just assumed I was being arrested for some shit. And we knew that was always a possibility. My husband and I had discussed it. We said, well, if we go to war with him, he's probably going to find a way to hurt it. You know, me, me. That was my burden. Yeah. After they have me outside and I tell them my husband and my kids are inside, then one of the officers pulls out his gun 
and they point all of their weapons at my husband and my two-year-old daughter and my 11-year-old son standing in the stairs, um, pushing my son around in the doorway with an AR-15-looking type weapon to his back. And I mean, we have all of, and we have that and so much more in video. We have 45 minutes of video, which include discussions that the police didn't think that were overheard. And um, yeah, it was, they were there to scare me. I had a really good week the week before the raid. You know, I'd done every major news network on what was happening with schools. Big piece in USA Today um, and the U.S. News and World Report. Everything actually was having a pretty damn good week. And um, then that happened. And uh, we woke up to that. And uh, when I said publicly, you know, that they came out with guns and I wouldn't be updating anything. They actually released a public statement saying that at no time were guns drawn. And um, I was like, oh, those cameras. <laughs> yeah, one camera that honestly, I sat there as I was running downstairs. It was almost like God intervening, saying like, grab it. That's honest to God what I thought. I thought maybe if they rough me up when they're arresting me, it'll capture it. That's what I thought might happen. Um, or they would overhear, the camera would pick up whatever charges, which of course there were none, they were there to arrest me on. And um, I hadn't used that camera since I did this thing with Geraldo Rivera like months before. I didn't know if it was charged. I didn't know if it even had a memory card in it or if the memory card in it had any space. It literally felt like something inside said, grab it, just grab it, turn it on, put it on the cat tree, just let it record. And if I didn't have that, I don't think anybody would have ever believed me. I think if I just went on the news and said, they came in, they had me, they were pushing me around outside, feeling me up, and then pulled out their guns, forced my family outside at gunpoint, where it was, you know, it was December, it was freezing outside. None of my kids have socks or shoes on or coats on. And nobody would have, they would have been like, oh, see, she's the crazy person that we told you about. And, um, I don't think they planned on that video of me just immediately hitting back. It, it did shake me up. Of course it shook me up. I'm Having a gun pointed at my face, I felt almost nothing. But when they came in the house, um, I think it's kind of clear from my reaction that I was petrified. And so, yes, it did scare me. But it made it that much more important that I not be silent. And... For me, being a human um, is one thing, but for me, I had become at that point the symbol of standing up for science against government malfeasance, and I was not going to let them break that image. So I did Chris Cuomo live that night, (laughs) and hit back as hard as we could do. (laughs) There were no charges ever filed on that. Um, Well, that was the other thing I thought they were doing. So scare me. I thought at first they were trying to get at my sources, but my phone was too encrypted. They never broke it. Um, So maybe they were and just couldn't get it. I don't know. The other thing I thought is like, once they have my computer, they're going to see that I have things that I shouldn't have, or they're going to find something else that they can make it seem like is a crime. And for them, that was a contact roster of our emergency management response people, which was sent out to us at least four times during COVID. And it's all public information. 
the names and work email addresses and office numbers. So you could file a public records request if the state ever decides to start filling those again and get that information. But apparently I wasn't allowed to have it. And um, so that's what they thought they were going to go after me for, which, of course, you know, it's been a year and, oh, wow, almost three months. <laughs> and I'm running for Congress against Matt Gates. So good for you. Good for you. Please tell our audience how they can support you in your continued desire to make Florida a better place and to bring science back to this poor, benighted state. I plan on taking the fight for, and it's not just about science. It's about government accountability and transparency all the way. I don't care how far this takes me or what it looks like, I'm going to take it as far as I can. And that's what I'm doing here. We have a congressman in my district who's, you know, an alleged sex trafficker of underage boys and girls. And she's been accused of witness tampering and bribery and fraud and is never here. And in his three terms, he's going for a fourth, has only passed one bill. One bill. And it was in his first year. And I, I mean, I personally feel like by the end of this, he'll have made over a million dollars in salary to be a representative, that that's a terrible investment to pay someone a million dollars to represent your area and only ever have one bill. It's not like we don't have problems, you know, that need fixed. It's not like our country doesn't have problems that need fixed. And that's the work that needs to be done. And so I'm the Democratic candidate running against him. And a Democrat has not won this district in 30 years. And, um, that's a long time, and there hasn't been a Democrat that has polled within 20 points of the GOP incumbent in almost that entire time. And last October, I was trailing by about six, and we're doing our current polling right now, and it looks like we're within the margin of error. So turns out that despite this far-right media you know, smear campaigns and flat-out lies, and uh, slander and this trying to control the narrative that people hate science, that's not true. That's not true. I grew up in an area that wasn't exactly, in for, you know, teaching science, and yet people still want to know. They know that they have a right to know. Nobody likes it when the government lies to them. It, it's kind of weird that we ended up in this paradox where it's now the Republican government that is now authoritarian. You know, DeSantis has gone full authoritarian. You can't say gay in schools. If your kid wants a vegetarian meal, apparently, they have to call your, the parents to get permission. Your kid can't just decide he doesn't want to eat meat anymore. You know, banning critical race theory and law programs across the state as if it's being taught in kindergarten and um, everything else that he's been doing. You know, making it legal to run over protesters with your car, <laughs> making it so that if you're arrested during a riot, which is a very loosely defined term now of like eight or more people blocking or obstructing traffic, if you're arrested in the proximity to a riot, you can be held without bail indefinitely. Indefinitely. Now, that is some Castro-level kind of stuff. And um, they are now the ones who are big government lying to everybody. And it turns out that the whole time, most of the good people here who were Republicans – didn't like that. They didn't like it when they felt it was Democrats, and they don't like it when it's Republicans. They don't want to be lied to. They are sick of being talked down to. They are sick of being treated like they're too stupid 
to see through it or too stupid to understand information. My entire job was to make sure everybody could understand that information. People are not as stupid as people like Ron DeSantis want them to think. And that is being, that's a wake up call for, especially for DeSantis, but for Matt Gates especially to think that, you know, this area is so dumb. That's what he thinks that no matter what, they're going to vote for me because I'm an R by my name. And I'm sure there will be a lot of people who do vote for him just because he's a Republican. And I'm not beyond admitting that the Democratic Party can be toxic to candidates in areas like this. I actually filed to run as an NPA to be an independent. And I ran an independent campaign for months until I found out they changed the law and I had to run as a Democrat. And um, it's people are better and smarter and more loving, I think, than people like Matt Gates and Ron DeSantis what? want them to think. And we're proving that. We just flipped an R30 into a, probably a Democratic seat. And uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to make some waves. And uh, DeSantis has a strong interest in making sure I never get to Congress because he knows the minute I'm there with my power, I'm going to investigate everything that he did because the people of Florida deserve justice. We have one of the highest fatality mortality rates in the country. Last year, the highest. After vaccines were available, Florida did worse than every other state, including Mississippi, which is where I'm from. And Mississippi loved that state. My whole family still lives in that state, except for some Florida family. Um, it's pretty much last in everything. And Florida did worse. And they didn't have to. Election in, in uh, November of 22. Yes. So November 8th um, will be the election for this year. That's the general. There's a primary in August 23rd, which you have to be a registered Democrat in the state of Florida to vote in a Democratic primary because we don't have open primaries. Right. Um, and so we're, you know, we're doing the work here in the, on the ground. And I think that a lot of the Republicans that are in this kind of fringe group banked on me coming here and being some radical liberal uh, maybe they saw what universities I went to and assumed I'd be an elitist. They didn't count on the fact that I grew up poor in South Mississippi, even homeless at times, and uh, had to do this crazy thing that they won't understand of working to get everything that you have. And they found out she's actually just a normal person who's sick of the way things are and wants to do better. And it uh, turns out that's all you actually need. Rebecca, thank you so very much. Uh, this has been just so good, so interesting. Uh, I, I salute you absolutely so much. Uh, thank you so much. Your continued drive to help uh, is just so remarkable. Uh, thank you, and I wish you every success. I'll be donating to Rebecca Jones for Congress. That's for sure. Thank you. And I always like to end with something positive because I know this past two years story has been, it's, it involves guns on children. So it's a little rough. Um, but I will say that when I was young, everyone told me by the time I finished college, I'd lose that passion, that spark. And everyone in college said, by the time you finish grad school and everyone in grad school said, by the time you finish your PhD, and everyone said, Oh, after 10 years of working, blah, blah. I didn't. I didn't because if we don't let ourselves, lose sight of what matters. If we refuse to accept things as being broken, we will always have the energy and the drive to fix them. So
So this whole idea of, you know, young people can't sustain that kind of passion and integrity. Clearly you are here. And everyone who's watching here is, is probably not a 15 year old who's being told that they won't be like that forever. But for those young people who are, don't ever accept the bad advice of bitter people because I am living proof. And this is the thing that scares the Sanchez more than anything. I'm living proof that one person can change everything in a heartbeat and can overcome the powers of the third largest state in the country, in the greatest country and most powerful country in the world, if you decide that that's who you want to be. And that's what they're afraid of. And every person who listens to this, who watches this, who goes to our website, that's what they know. That's the lesson that they take away. One girl with a laptop changed Florida history. And everyone else can too. I think you're going to continue to change the climate wherever you go. Thank you so very much. Thank you. I can't say that enough. Best of luck, Rebecca. (laughs) Have a wonderful day and thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Rick's uh, interview with Dr. Rebecca Jones. Uh, I'm Janine Moloff. I'm back for the second hour of our show. And I would encourage everybody to look up Rebecca Jones's website in her, her congressional race against Matt Gates. Um, that's something that I, I definitely am going to check out. So our second story, and again, Excuse me if I'm not in such great voice today. <clears throat> Ukraine. By now, you've heard probably more about Ukraine than you maybe want to hear. You're outraged. Maybe you are a um, just confused by it. But the world's watching this invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin, Russian dictator, and the story is changing so much on the ground that instead of just talking about the nuclear risk, which there is, and it's not just uh, dropping nuclear bombs, but also the risk to already existing nuclear reactors in Ukraine. But I have several observations. So say I'm going to amend what it says in the advert, because again, things keep changing that fast on the ground. And I'm going to give a little bit of an overview about several stories and ideas that maybe aren't getting much play in the mainstream read corporate news. And then this is going to lead into another show uh, probably next week where we're going to be talking about the question, was Donald Trump a Russian asset? There's quite a bit of evidence to beef up that question and that claim. But let's start with this. So here's some observations that – and questions that I have. You know, number one, Putin has been saber-rattling for months. Now he's at it again, and he's just as of a few hours ago, he ordered deterrence forces to high alert. I think it was actually highest alert. And deterrence forces, for those who are unsure, that means nuclear forces. So basically what he's saying is he's ramping it up for a possible nuclear strike against Ukraine, or I guess against anybody that gets in his way. But again, that's what's happening. Number two, and this is, you know, again, in Florida, you know, you have the main resident, Mar-a-Lago, and uh, there's a lot of question marks around Donald Trump and his administration. 
But once again, uh, the Donald, as he likes to call himself, is once again running what I'll say is his big, stupid mouth. And he's declaring that there will be a huge war in all of Europe. Now, that may be. To some, this declaration is might just be another expulsion of hot air from the Donald. But I think it signals something far more menacing. Is this merely political bad-mouthing aimed at the Biden administration? Or is this Donald Trump running his mouth about something he already knows will probably come to pass? Again, it begs the question, and a very legitimate question at that, is Donald Trump a Russian asset? And does he? Con- and if so, is he continuing to be a Russian asset? And that speaks to the fact that past presidents, once they leave office, are usually given access to security briefs, in- intelligence briefs. And that's been a tradition. It's, it's not actually written into law that I know of. And the sitting president can actually cut it off. Given the question marks, and we will get into it next week, given the question marks around Donald Trump and his, his long relationship, not only with Russia, but with Russian oligarchs, he probably should be cut off from, intel- from receiving that intelligence brief. You know, keep in mind that anyone who studied Russia for any period of time knows, especially under the Putin regime, no oligarch, nothing happens in big business unless Vladimir Putin gives his, his approval and Putin gets a cut, a slice of the pie. Make no mistake about it. So that's another question here. A third question, you know, international businesses, including American businesses, still have a very large presence in Russia. At this point, they shouldn't. There, let's face it, there's no honor between criminals. And, you know, let's make no mistake about it. Vladimir Putin is a criminal. Every American business should be told to vacate Russia immediately, cut all economic ties, and anything they can't take with them when they're leaving, destroy it. Anything, destroy anything that's left behind. Leave nothing for Putin. American and European businesses who refuse to comply, they need to be boycotted into bankruptcy if need be. You know, again, Putin is, he's been attacking Ukraine. He's lied about the reason for it. There is no real reason. And look at the geography. There's Crimea on one side, Belarus on another, Russia. He's surrounded on th- they've surrounded um, Ukraine on three sides, leaving an open pathway for a, a mighty force to go into all of Europe. First, it'll be Ukraine, and then yes, I think that Putin intends to try and attack and take over as much of Europe as he possibly can. Okay, now there is a link. Uh, especially here in the States, where you can find American businesses in Russia. And that is through the Association of Accredited Public Policy Advocates to the European uh, European Union. Uh, and you can find out, and there are many businesses operating in Russia, including companies like Disney. I, I'm going to read the list of, of, excuse me, I'm going to read a big part of the list. These are the companies that we know of that are in Russia. 3M. Abbott Laboratories, I'm, I'm not going to read all of them, just some, Alcoa, American Express, uh, let's see, Apple, yeah, you like your Apple products, maybe you need to boycott them, Avon, Black & Decker, Boeing Russia, Bristol-Myers Squibb, 
Burger King. Can you imagine? Cargill, Chevron, Cisco Systems, City Russia, Citibank, St. Petersburg Branch, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola System in Russia, Colgate-Palmolive, excuse me, um, let's see, ConocoPhillips, of course, Corning, Crate and Barrel, wouldn't have imagined, Dell, Delta Airlines, Dolby, Dow Europe, DuPont Science and Technology, ExxonMobil, of course. You expect the energy sector to be there, but then Forever 21, tell your teenage daughters you're never going to buy there again. General Electric, General Motors, Goldman Sachs, Google, Halliburton, that's associated with Cheney and Bush, Herbalife, Hewlett Packard, Hilton, Russia, Honeywell, Huntsman, IBM, Intel, John Deere, Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan, Kellogg, KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken is there. Oh, God, Krispy Kreme. I will never eat another Krispy Kreme donut again until they get their ass out of Russia. Levi Strauss Moscow, Liberty Insurance, Lily Pharma, Mars Incorporated, that's, you know, Candy, Mary Kay, MasterCard International, McDonald's Russia, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, it goes on, NBC Universal, Nike, yeah, PepsiCo, Pfizer, Philip Morris, Procter & Gamble, Rand Corporation, Sherwin-Williams, Standard & Poor's, Starbucks, Subway Russia, Estee Lauder companies. Well, I'm never going to buy any Estee Lauder uh, makeup ever again, not until they leave. The Walt Disney Company. Yeah, seriously. United Way of Russia, Visa, Walt Disney Studios, Sony Pictures Releasing, Western Union, Wrigley, which is a subsidiary of Mars, Xerox, you get the idea. So that, those are the companies you can go to that website and see what's going on there. Okay, and that's the Association of Accredited Public Policy Advocates to the European Union. These are, that's the list of American companies operated in Russia, which should be told, get out of Russia. Bring those manufacturing jobs back to the United States. Do not allow Putin to benefit from your presence. Some other observations. The USA must do a deep dive. This is important. The U.S. government must do a deep dive investigation into any possible intelligence leaks that occurred during the Trump administration. And instead of private attorneys like Bob Mueller conducting the investigation, this investigation must be conducted by actual intelligence professionals not connected to any private pro private enterprise. And special attention, in my opinion, this is just my idea, should be paid to our satellite codes because satellites control communications, the power grid, and yes, they control systems on our military arsenal, including our nuclear codes. Members of the Trump administration must be very seriously interrogated. This isn't partisan, all right? This is called for as Trump himself allowed the Russians, it's on record, allowed the Russians access to sensitive intelligence according to multiple intelligence professionals. And we will get into that more on another show. Furthermore, Trump's access to intelligence briefings as a former president, as I said before, must be ended. He is a national security risk, and it's proven so. A few more points. It is patently clear by now that Vladimir Putin is borrowing strategy 
from the Hitler playbook. And this is, in my opinion, 1938 2.0. Ukraine, in my opinion, is the first step, as I said before, with the rest of Europe facing attack from Vladimir Putin. And that attack could also uh, include the idea of the threat of a nuclear attack. All right? And as I said before, at the beginning of this uh, segment, just a few hours ago, Putin ordered nuclear deterrence forces to a, excuse me, heightened state of alert. Now, at this point in time, it's not just the threat, and we're going to talk about the nuclear risk right now. It's not just the threat of, um, of a nuclear bombs raining down sent from Russia into Ukraine. Uh, the threat is, as they've covered in other newscasts, Chernobyl, all right, and whether or not that domed building they put over it in 2016 stands the attack from uh, aerial bombs, and also the 15 additional nuclear reactors that are at risk because, once again, they weren't built to withstand uh, military bombing, Okay. So this is, these are some of the observations. I know this is a little disjointed today, but like I said, next week we're going to be talking about, you know, the, the idea that Donald Trump was a Russian and remains a Russian asset. And there is plenty of circumstantial but very good evidence to point that way. Okay, let's move on. And again, this is disjointed because, again, so many things are changing on the ground, the minute you write something up, something else happens. So it isn't just that Putin is attacking Ukraine. Okay, this apparently savagely, savagely attacking Ukraine and shoot, having Russian soldiers shoot entire families, including children, while they sit in cars isn't enough. Okay, this, is, this next story, this next threat that Putin issued really backs up my theory that Vladimir Putin intends to basically try and take over all of Europe. Because as of just a few days ago, uh, today's 27th on Friday the 25th, uh, Putin, there's articles running that Putin is now threatening Finland and Sweden, though neither nation has ever attacked Russia. Now, one thing to notice, the close proximity both nations have to the Arctic Circle, which Russia desperately wants to control, because again, there's enormous, believe me, enormous amounts of uh, oil and gas there. So I saw this article, it's all over, but this one's from Newsweek. Um, it's written by Gerard Kayonga, and uh, it published Friday, and the headline is Russia, excuse me, Russia issues ominous warning to Finland, Sweden, should they join NATO? So this, this threat came from Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman, uh, Maria Zakharova. She's a nervy, I'm going to say something that she's a nervy bee, okay? And she gave this speech, and uh, it went viral on social media because she's the one that actually voiced this threat. Keep in mind, though, Maria Zakharova as Russian foreign ministry spokesman, or spokeswoman, rather, is taking her orders from Vladimir Putin. Make no mistake about it. Um, she issued what looked like a threat aimed at Sweden and Finland, um, saying that if they joined NATO, they, they would suffer, quote, serious 
military political repercussions, end quote. And the video, as of Friday, already received over 300,000 views on Twitter. So it was a press conference that Zakharova gave, and she said the following, quote, Finland and Sweden should not base their security damaging the security of other countries. Clearly, the accession of Finland and Sweden into NATO, which is first and foremost a military alliance, would have serious military political repercussions that would demand a response from our country, end quote. Now, this came, this threat, this speech came right after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky did confirm that Ukraine was receiving support from both Sweden and Finland. Uh, to, in a tweet that Zelensky issued, quote, discussed with Finnish President Salininstu, countering the aggressor, informed about our, our defense, insidious shelling of Kiev, grateful to Finland for allocating $50 million in aid. It's an effective contribution to the anti-war coalition. We keep working. We need to increase sanction and Ukraine defense support, end quote. Zelensky also later tweeted, quote, Sweden provides military, technical, and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, grateful to Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson for her effective support, building an anti-Putin coalition together, end quote. Um, the Twitter pages of the Finnish president and the Swedish Prime Minister also condemned Russia. Um, basically, let's see now. Ninistu, who is the Finnish, Finnish president, said in a tweet, Quote, I strongly condemn the military measures Russia has started in Ukraine. Russia's acts target Ukraine, but at the same time, they are an attack on the entire European security order. We feel deep compassion towards Ukraine and are seeking ways to increase our support to Ukraine, end quote. And then basically the, um, the Swedish prime minister had a Twitter page as well. And she said, quote, Sweden, Sweden condemns in the strongest terms Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Russia's acts are also an attack on the European security order. It will be met by a united and robust response in solidarity with Ukraine. Russia alone is responsible for human suffering, end quote. Okay. So then what did Putin do? He's really, I, I don't know if he's just, just your, I don't know if Putin's just your run-of-the-mill sociopath or if he's really getting crazier because he, uh, in Newsweek, according to Newsweek, he addressed Ukrainian soldiers uh, shortly, like 48 hours after he ordered Russian forces to invade Ukraine. And it was televised. And he said that um, it would be easier to come to an agreement between Ukraine and Russia, quote, without a gang of junkies and neo-Nazis, okay? He went on to say that the Ukrainian army should not be allowed to, quote, use your children, your wives, and old people as human shields, end quote. Okay, apparently, you know, good old Vlad doesn't really want to be bothered with the truth. He and Donald Trump have a lot of that in common. The fact is that President Zelensky is the grandson of a family that, well, there were four brothers, and it was his grandfather, that was the only brother that survived, that the others died, perished in the Holocaust. The grandfather survived and fought against the Nazis, and Zelensky as president. 
you know, slight little thing is Zelensky's Jewish. All right. Just again, Putin is doing. He's basic. Basically, what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is gaslight everybody, and no one's believing it, except maybe Donald Trump. So there's more news. Okay, again, this is an overview. So we've got that going on. And again, my theory is anybody Putin wants to intimidate all of Europe. You know, with the idea, you help Ukraine and we will bomb you. And the intent, in my opinion, and, and again, apparently the Finnish and Swedish uh, leaders agree, is that he, like Hitler before him, he wants to conquer all of Europe and be the dictator. Now I have a, a paper here from the Taiwan News, Voice of the People, Bridge to the World. And it talks about how Anonymous, do you remember the group Anonymous that politicians here hated? Well, they hacked into the Russian website and into Russian devices as retaliation for the UK, Ukraine invasion. In fact, Anonymous hacked successfully into two, what they call two Russian mode bus devices and one Symantec controller in China. I don't know what a Modbus device is, but you get the idea. And they have this screenshot that is absolutely hilarious. It is a cartoon, a portrait of Putin. He is uh, in, in front of a rainbow, and he is made up like, um, I guess a transvestite, because, you know, Putin is homophobic and transphobic. Fake eyelashes, eye makeup, big red lipstick lips. It's hilarious. So, again, Taiwan News came out of Taipei. Um, I'm just reading straight from it now. They said, quote, the decentralized international activist collective Anonymous is hacked into a Russian website, um, end quote. Apparently on Thursday, which was February 24th, Anonymous successfully hacked into, it's called the Center for the Protection of Monuments website. And they uploaded what what, uh, this group called three rogue pages, which were um, adorned with blue and yellow colors of the Ukrainian flag. There were, they defaced quite a bit of things. Uh, they included photos of two industrial devices in Russia and one in China that the group had clearly compromised. Um, and Anonymous has saved, quote, archived versions of defaced pages, number one, number two, and number three. Now, the first image that appears on the, fir- on the first, you know, page they defaced is the Anonymous logo. And then, then after that, there's an image of, you know, the Guy Fox mask. And then after that is a video that plays music for Fragile. Now, apparently the song Frangel is a mando pop song, and it is sung by Malaysian rapper Namewee and a Taiwan-based Australian singer named Kimberly Chen. After that, the words Operation Samantha Samantha Smith were on the screen, and that's a reference to a child peace activist in the 1980s. Then, Then they wrote, that the scrap piece plan had morphed into Operation Ukraine and Operation Russia, with Russia, you know, of course, not wanting peace. And the collective warns, quote, we will do what we must, end quote. Then there's a photo of Ukrainian anarchist revolutionary Nestor Mankno. And apparently he was a commander in the Revolutionary Insurgent Army of Ukraine. And they were, that was during the Ukrainian War of Independence, which uh, ran from 1917 to 1921. And then in this article here, and you can look it up yourself, there's three screenshots 
of a semantic programmable logic controller that's been compromised in China. And it's spelled S as in Sam I M A T I C. And you see this messed up. There's a number of Reddit themes that appear. There's an image of, again, Vladimir Putin in heavy makeup and a rainbow behind him. Um, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And then there's a representative of Anonymous that told Taiwan News, quote, that the next five images are screenshots of two different Modbus devices in Russia that the team had hacked into. Um, Modbus spelled M. O, D is in dog, B is in boy, U.S. Um, and the representative of Anon Anonymous also gave a quote, quote, Anonymous is not a group, not a country, but an amorphous idea. It flows like air, like water, like everything. Let it be known that since its inception, Anonymous never have restrictions that say that only homo sapiens can be part of it, Okay. Um, and in one of the defaced pages, Anonymous did make the threat that any further hacks will be, quote, precipitated by Russia's continued failure in recognizing the territorial aggression in itself is nothing but a relic of dark ages in the distant past. Okay. There's also a second inserted page that shows photos and names of deceased passengers from Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. That was the flight that was shot down by pro-Russian separatists in Ukraine in 2014. They used the surface-to-air missile. All those people died. Um, the third uploaded page shows the anonymous logo, the Guy Fox mask. And then there is a video that plays the circus theme song, quote, for a maddening 10 hours. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is sort of funny. Um, there was another separate attack that anonymous announced on Friday. Um, just February 25th, and in this attack, Anonymous said they managed to take down RT for a brief amount of time through the use of a DDoS attack, which is a distributed denial of service attack. And, um, you know, the, the Anonymous uh, Twitter account announcing the DDoS attack on RT um, clearly stated that the collective is officially the collectivists said they are officially, quote, in a cyber war with the Russian government, okay? And those of you that don't know, RT, they try and make it look like they're a legitimate news service, but they are controlled by the Russian government. Those are propagandists. And on that one, all I can say is, God bless Anonymous. Go get them. All right. And there's another piece here by Metro News Reporter, the same type of thing, um, you know, it says something that these young hackers through Anonymous, they have the guts to do what a lot of these politicians don't. All right. Look, I am very much a progressive. Make no mistake about it. And I'm certainly not a war hawk. But I'm not a pacifist either. Um, I'd like to think I have street smarts, which means that when I look at somebody with the history of Vladimir Putin, I know that no amount of peace talks or singing kumbaya is going to make that monster stop because he clearly must have full control of everything. That's all there is to it. So, another thing. There's so much going on all at once. Then, 
from Inside Climate News, which again, one of Pulitzer, they do great work. Um, they have a couple of articles. We won't have time to discuss them all today. And this is really regarding the stupidity of the way the Russian invasion went, the way the Russian invasion came to be. The real nuclear threat, which, as I said before, is, you know, can Chernobyl and the dome, the dome building that was placed over it like a sarcophagus in 2016, can that withstand? Um, and stay put if it's hit by a Russian bomb or missile. And then you have the 15 other additional nuclear reactors in Ukraine that, you know, can they withstand? They're not built to withstand military attacks. And, you know, one of the stories that came out was that Russian soldiers basically um, – made the entire staff at Chernobyl that are responsible, you know, these are staffers responsible for maintaining Chernobyl and making sure that um, the stored fuel, you know, stays in that cold water and it doesn't go critical. And those Russian soldiers made them stand down. So there's nobody watching it. I don't know if this is an instance where these are just pimply-faced soldiers that are too stupid to understand what's really happening here. But, or if this was done on purpose. But it is, it, it's something that won't just affect Nuker, Ukraine, it'll affect Russia too. So I don't know what they're thinking. And, and you know, the head, this, is, this was a piece written by Michael Kodas for Inside Climate, um, I'm sorry, Inside Climate News. And it was published um, yesterday. So, you know, the, the headline is um, Chernobyl is not the only nuclear threat Russia's, that Re Russia's invasion has sparked in Ukraine. The potential for fires in the Red Forest is still tainted by radioactive fallout from the 1986 meltdown, and the 15 reactors running elsewhere in the country pose greater risk. Okay. So this is what we're dealing with here. You know, shortly after Russia invaded, only been a few days. Um, Thursday morning, Ukrainian officials reported that there was a major fight in what they call the exclusion zone around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Um, and Zelensky report, President Zelensky reported on Twitter, quote, our defenders are giving their lives so that the tragedy of a 1986 will not be repeated. This is a declaration of war against the whole of Europe. And in case you don't recall, um, it was the Chernobyl power plant that went critical, and it was one. Of, it was like the worst nuclear disaster in the world. Okay, this is something that is very serious. And that was in 1986. There's still major parts of that area with, you know with radioactive fallout that are uninhabitable. And again, even when it went critical, after things toned down a bit, they put, they put a dome building over it. And again, those spent nuclear fuel rods, they have to be kept a certain temperature in these cold, uh, these, refrig these uh, refrigerated water pools. If they're not, they will go critical like in Fukushima. All right? This is what we're dealing with. 
You know, before there was Fukushima, there was Chernobyl. Chernobyl can become, again, another Fukushima if the staff at Chernobyl aren't allowed to do their job. The Russian troops captured Chernobyl. They kept the staff from overseeing cleanup and maintenance of the site. All right. Um, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said during news conference Thursday, quote, we're outraged by credible reports that Russian soldiers are currently holding the staff of the Chernobyl facility hostage. This unlawful and dangerous hostage taking, which could upend routine civil service efforts required to maintain and protect the nuclear waste facilities, is obviously incredibly alarming and gravely concerning. We demand and request their release, end quote. In 1986, Chernobyl's reactor number four exploded. And this is the death toll for Chernobyl, the long-term death toll it is from that disaster, runs as high as a million people. And it could happen all over again because these idiotic young Russian soldiers decided that they were going to take it over. The contaminated wreckage of the plant and the nuclear fuel there is going to remain dangerous, lethal for centuries. It, the maintenance has to be done at all times. But if there have been reports that have leaked out that Russian forces were interrupting the maintenance and the safety and the cleanup work. Um, according to Ukraine's Minister of Energy, quote, for the second day, the occupiers have been detaining personnel of the Chernobyl NPP station, not allowing them to rotate as required by technical safety rules. Okay. There are automated sensors in the area around Chernobyl that have detected spikes in radiation levels. Um, you know, once again, this is a disaster in the making. It isn't just the attack on Ukraine. This is incredibly stupid on the part of the Russian military. Um, so let me... The larger danger here, though, is that there's a potential for forest fires. And the forest fires, because there's so much radioactive dust in the area, that it would put, it, the forest fires would produce radioactive smoke. And that's smoke that would be breathed by Russian soldiers as well as Ukrainians. Um, and there's been an increase in wildfire in recent years. Um, the soil still holds more than 90% of the radionuclides that deposited there. Um, so, you know, once again, there's also a vast, what they call, exclusion zone. And this is basically a place where no one should be. It's an, according to this article, it's an area the size of Luxembourg. Okay. And you know, once again, this is a large fire in the Red Forest that could produce, <clears throat> excuse me, a plume of smoke and ash <clears throat> that could be carried hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away. In fact, in 2011, there was some research conducted by Ukrainian forest pro forestry professor Sergei Zibze and Chad Oliver. And Oliver was then uh, director of Yale's Global Institute of Sustainable Forestry. And the two professors did estimate that a fire which fully 
like consume the, the uh, red forest, would also blank, quote, would blanket, I'm reading straight from this, okay? Um, they estimated, quote, that a fire that fully consumed the forest would blanket keys with radioactive smoke, increasing the risk of cancer for its residents. Produce grown up to 90 miles away from the fire would be so contaminated that it couldn't be safely eaten, and the stigma of radiation on one of Europe's bread baskets would keep other countries from importing even uncontaminated Ukrainian foods, end quote. Maybe this attack on Chernobyl wasn't stupidity. You know, maybe their intent is to basically destroy the Ukrainian resistance in the most cowardly fashion by allowing a forest fire to occur and then basically people would be too sick to, you know, to fight. I wouldn't put it past Putin. He's that low life. Okay. Um, and this is something where they also said, according to the BarrentObserver.com, sensors as far away as sensors as far away as Norway, which is 2,000 miles from the fires, detected increased levels of cesium in the air. Okay, and this was, they were measuring a fire that occurred in April of 2020, and it burned more than 150,000 acres of the Red Forest, and it smothered keys in smoke, and the sensors in Norway picked it up. Okay, now this article goes on and asks, quote, I'm just reading straight from this now, quote, as to why Russia would prioritize capturing Chernobyl, Military analysts note that it's along the shortest route from the territory's ally, Belarus, to Kiev, and on a path that avoids the region's marshes where vehicles could be mired in mud, uh, end quote. And again, you can theorize yourself, but, you know, this is a serious concern. And yet, there's more of a nuclear concern with the 15 other nuclear um, um, excuse me, nuclear plants that are active in Ukraine. They were not built to sustain to sustain through a military attack. And this is something that is really frightening. And these are full operational. Um, all it would take is one missile to go off off where you know off kilter and strike one of those reactors and you would have a nuclear disaster. You know, this is basically the, I, I read the headline incorrectly, my bad. The headline was Chernobyl is not the only nuclear threat in Russia's invasion of sparked in Ukraine. That's from Inside Climate News. And the author of that article, Michael Kodaz, um, is also the author of Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. Um, let's see now. He is also the former deputy director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, he was part of a team as a photojournalist, awarded the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage in 99. Um, you get the drift. Guy knows what he's doing. Okay. So there's some other articles too from Inside Climate News. Um, I don't know if we're going to get through them all, but this is what you know we're dealing with right now. I'm going to move down now. 
So we know that there's some nuclear concerns as well. Okay. And this is something that, you know, all of Europe has to deal with. Now, there's been a lot of talk also about uh, clamping down on Russian banks, on oligarchs. Let's get something straight here, okay? When it comes to oligarchs and big business in Russia, nothing happens without Putin's blessing, all right? Um, you know, he has had, Vladimir Putin has had enjoyed a, um, a very cozy relationship with the Russian mafia. So, you know, once again, and he's benefited from it. You know, there was a piece, and this was, let's see now, losing my place here. This was from a group called the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, okay? And the article headline is Putin, the richest man on earth, question mark. Now, this was published in 2012, and it was written by Maeve McLanahan. And this bureau, they co-publish stories with major media outlets around the world. And this article talks about the fact that um, they ask a lot of questions, like how could somebody like Vladimir Putin with an annual salary of about 140000 a year live a life with, you know, full of luxury watches that are worth almost as much as his yearly salary, as well as yachts and palaces. So the Bureau decided to investigate, and they also, back in 2012, and they also produced a documentary for Al Jazeera's uh, People in Power series. And, you know, once again, Putin, he's got some declared assets, it's true, but you know, and it's, it's declared assets according to this as of 2012. Um, in 2012, they said he had $179,612 in the bank, that he's earned around half a million dollars in the past four years between 08 and 12. His wife has about slightly under $262,000 in bank accounts. Um, and then he has a share in the public garage, Apartments in Moscow and St. Petersburg and a 1,500-square-meter plot of land outside Moscow. But that's not enough to generate the kind of luxury he likes. Okay? Um, he's been photographed with this luxurious watch, um, including any likes expensive brands, including um, 70, I think it's a euro, 70,000 euro Patek Philippe Perpetual Calendar, um, he's been spotted giving away uh, 11,000 euros worth of blank pan watches. Um, he's been photographed wearing about 160,000 euros worth of wristwear. Um, but, and that's something because in euros before tax, he earned, at that time he earned 80,000 euros. So the numbers don't jive. <clears throat> Excuse me. He has a presidential yacht. Um, the yacht came with a 26 million euro price tag. It has six luxury cabins. It has a wine cellar, a jacuzzi, barbecue, and other stuff. Um, it said the yacht was bought with presidential funds. Sounds fishy to me. Okay. 
He also has a mansion by the Black Sea. Now, it sold, recent, it sold like in around 2012 for some 350 million euros. Um, you know, once again, how does a man that earns that kind of living afford all this? Well, hidden wealth, all right. Um, Stanislav Belkovsky, and this was written in 12, is a political analyst and critic of Putin. And he claims that Putin theoretically could be worth as much as $70 billion. Now, that is, uh, at that time, that is an amount that would make him then the richest man in the world. So, and then that, that amount is based on the idea that Putin owns shares, allegedly owns shares, in three major oil and gas companies. Uh, and they are 4.5% of national gas giant Gazprom. Gazprom is run and owned by the Russian government, mind you. 37% of oil suppliers to Gutnet Gas, and also a major shareholder of a company that they can't name for legal reasons. I wonder what that's about. And the company denies any links to Putin. Um, in 07, they figured that Putin was worth $40 billion. Um, Belkovsky says now between 60 and 70 billion as of 12 as of 2012. Um, gas and oil producers to goodness gas um, is a very secretive company. In 09, they bought 21.2 percent in a Hungarian company called MOL. Um, then there's Gazprom, and they're the biggest gas extractor in the world. The Russian government controls it and owns a basically not quite 51% stake. It's like 50.002%. Um, and Gazprom is a bit more transparent regarding share ownership, but Velkovsky um, says that Putin's share is hidden through, quote, a non-transparent scheme of successive ownership of offshore companies and funds. <clears throat> and according to this article, Gazprom Mr. Gutnick yes, did not respond to the Bureau's questions. So, oh, excuse me, folks. <coughs> There's a lot of questions here. It only got worse for Putin to investigate. You know, the mainstream media has made this big deal about saying, well, we want to, you know, cut off Putin from all Russian banks and European banks, but it's kind of hard to figure out where his personal assets are. It's kind of hard to figure out where the Russian oligarchs' personal assets are, except it's not true. According to an article published by The Guardian in London, this, was piece, this piece was published October 3rd of 21. The headline is Pandora Papers. Remember that? Pandora Papers reveal hidden riches of Putin's inner circle. Okay. Uh, and the subheadline is alleged lover and others linked to Putin have all come into extreme wealth, but is this money really theirs? And you know, once again, the Pandora Papers is a product of really leaks and yes, really good investigative reporting. All right, and. To give you an example, um, okay, I'm losing my place here, folks. 
this is something that the political parties do not want you to know. But once again, the Pandora Papers have shed light on this. And there's, we don't have enough time to go into it, unfortunately. Um, but this article by The Guardian just a few months ago really names a lot of names. Um, so we don't have time to go into it, but if you want to see where the wealth is hidden, Pandora Papers are it. Okay. Now we have another piece, and it was written February 23rd, 2022, and it's from Vox. I love Vox. They do what's called explanatory journalism. I must make it fast. We only have about 15 minutes. Uh, the article is written by Zach Beauchamp, and the headline is, Why is Putin attacking your Ukraine? He told us. In a recent speech, the Russian president laid out the nationalist ideas and animate him and help to cause the Ukraine crisis. And then that is a, one, of, one of the articles there. And then there is another piece by Ryan O'Connell, and this was written January 12, 2022. Long time to go over it. And it is simply titled, Will Ukraine Be a Replay of Poland in 1939? To prevent a Russian invas invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and NATO can't rely on sanctions alone. History offers a clear message on appeasement. And, and this is the problem I'm having with the Biden administration. Um, President Biden is looking a lot like Neville Chamberlain. And we all know how that ended. I really do believe that what Putin is doing now, and in the shadows, I think, he, you know, we know that Putin has a cozy relate, new relationship with China. So in the shadows, I think, Perhaps the Chinese government is looking to see what will happen and testing the waters. And I think the Chinese dictator is perfectly fine letting Putin do their dirty work for them. Just my theory. But, you know, Putin is using the big lie, just like Hitler did, to try and justify this invasion. I don't think it was just going to stop with Ukraine. Okay. I think that Putin is trying to see how much resistance there would be and from what corners and then plan accordingly. If he backs off from Ukraine in the near future, watch. It'll only be a tactical back off, a tactical retreat. You know, this is clear. He wants to take over Europe, period, and control them. And if NATO and the U.S. allowed Putin to continue invading Ukraine without putting extra boots on the ground, other troops, then yes, this is going to continue. Sanctions aren't enough. Every NATO nation, including the United States, needs to be sending troops to Ukraine. The Ukrainians should not have to do this on their own. Not at all. We need to make this very clear and very clear to Vladimir Putin. You so much as drop one tiny little mini nuke, which is referred to as a bunker buster, and we will end you. We will retaliate in like kind, period. That's it. And that and our nuclear response will be aimed straight at the cities, and the and the business district. 
Okay, and I know that sounds harsh, but Putin is brutal. And any, you give him the slightest little bit of room, and he's going to run with it. So, yeah, I, sanctions aren't enough. In my opinion, every NATO nation, as well as the United States and Canada, we should all be sending troops. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. No excuses. And we should be literally pushing those Russian troops back and make Vladimir Putin understand there will be swift and effective retaliation. Appeasement won't work. And sanctions alone are just that. They're appeasement. Got to remember, Poland in 1939, Great Britain and France refused to defend against Hitler. Then we had Ukraine in 2014 with the breakaway uh, areas. And now eight years later. Okay. And I, you know, according to this article, China is just looking to see what would happen. So if they think that the U.S. and NATO allies won't respond except with, you know, some sanctions that maybe they prepared for, Taiwan would be next. And the Chinese would just take it. They might go after Japan even. Okay. You know, is Vladimir Putin paranoid? Probably. That's not the point. Okay. This is something Ukraine needs help right now. They need boots on the ground. Keep in mind, the Trump administration really savagely weakened Ukraine by blocking military aid to them when Trump was in office. And you got to remember, too, for two for decades, Trump's source of wealth, after banks would no longer lend to him, came from Russian oligarchs. Do you really think that Russian oligarchs, with Putin's permission, I'm sure, invested in losing propositions that didn't expect something in return? You know, there's a word for people who throw money away into losing propositions. A lot of Trump's uh, apartment complexes that were just, they never went anywhere, okay? He went bankrupt multiple times. There's a word for people that throw money around like that. It's called money laundering, and it's very illegal. Once again, you can't talk about this without pointing fingers at the Trump administration and the conflict of interest at the very least they have. Okay, so once again, there's, we talked about a lot of different things today, um, touched on several different hot points, flashpoints, if you will, and next week we are definitely, unless something else happens, but the plan is next week we will be talking about whether or not Donald Trump has been and continues to be a Russian asset. Now, the difference between a spy or an agent and an asset it's quite clear. An agent or a spy, if you will, they can be trusted with keeping their mouths shut. They are in the business of spying. Um, and Donald Trump really has a stupid mouth, let's say facts. You know, the, the theory is that he was an asset. Now, an asset can be somebody as simple as what's called a useful idiot, you know, where basically he's so stupid that he allowed people access to sensitive intelligence 
like the Russians that never should have been able to look at it and compromised our national security in the process. And I think there's enough evidence to show that, yes, Donald Trump was a Russian asset. And people in his sphere need to be criminally investigated. So we're going to be talking about next uh, week. Again, we touched on a lot of different things today. And there's some serious issues, and this story is not going to go away anytime soon. So I apologize if it was rather disjointed. But... Again, it's changing so much that I wanted to give you as much as I possibly could, and this was the only way I knew how to do it. So in conclusion, there is no way to negotiate with a terrorist or a criminal, and Vladimir Putin is both. Now, there are those who earlier claimed that a statement like that would be histrionic. Those who made that apologist claim, even slightly defending Putin, are either fools or collaborators, treasonous collaborators of that. Make no mistake, in my opinion, Putin is following Hitler's playbook. He cannot have, and this is the biggest reason why he's attacking Ukraine, in my, my opinion. Vladimir Putin cannot have a vibrant democracy right next door, brutal regime. Just as China can't have a democracy next door to theirs either. Eventually, the people there will look at it and see, hmm, life is better over there in that democracy, and it's going to be harder to control them. That's what's really what this is about. And so, again, the biggest reason that Putin is, a, is attacking Ukraine, he cannot have a democracy next door. It, it, it serves as an example that things could be better and people don't have to take being abused, okay? In fact, the um, Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, uh, Oksana, I can't remember her name. Anyway, I apologize to her. She was very brave on air, and she brought up the point that um, everybody has to take a side in this. You know, there are Republicans that are saying, look, we don't want to take sides. We don't want to get involved in this war. And that's just plain wrong, okay? Uh, and the Ukrainian ambassador brought up uh, how Elie Wiesel, you know, had a very famous quote about neutra- how neutrality helps the oppressor. And this was a quote from Wiesel's Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech in 1986. And he was very right. And I'm going to read that quote because those that say we shouldn't get involved when these are our allies are just complicit. When you refuse to get involved, you're allowing a monster like Putin or previously Hitler to continue a genocide. And here's the quote from Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor. Quote, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. 
Wherever men or women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the center of the universe. And that's our show for today. Next week, we will be, uh, again, unless something else happens, we will be talking about this question. Is Donald Trump, was he a Russian asset, and does he continue to be? There's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that, yes, he is. With that, I say good night, and God bless the people of Ukraine. I stand with Ukraine.